Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 80, A Catastrophic Ruling, The Overturning of Guaranteed Abortion Access. My guest, Diljing Singh, MD, is board certified in OBGYN in gynecologic oncology. She also has an MPH in maternal health and child health and a PhD in health services research. Dr. Singh currently practices in the Washington, D.C. metro area. Dr. Singh, welcome back to Medicare for All Explained. Thanks so much for having me. Unhappy to be talking about our topic today, but happy to be here. Last Friday, June 24th, the Supreme Court of the United States overturned Roe v. Wade, thus ending women's guaranteed right to abortions. This decision was Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. Dr. Singh, how will this ruling affect women's health? Yeah, so Joe, just to you know, be clear, we're describing it as women's health, but clearly there's people who need these healthcare services, who have a uterus, have a cervix, have ovaries, who don't necessarily identify as women. I think we'll speak to them as women's health, but obviously the, the needs expand beyond. There's lots of problems, and we've spent some time in, in the past talking about them, but as we think about this catastrophic ruling. I think the most important thing we have to start with is women are going to die. Mothers are going to die. Pregnant people are going to die. And the data is pretty clear. Physicians for a National Health Plan, whose executive committee, as you know, I am on, did an estimate that maternal mortality will increase up to 15% overall, with an increase for 33% for people of color. Um, And this comes from data looking at states that had uh, more restrictive approaches to abortion services, and they saw increases in maternal mortality up to 38%, and even looking at, in other states, a doubling of maternal mortality in states that had restrictive abortions when compared to those that had protected uh, access to abortion services. So the, the tip of the the impact is women dying, mothers dying. But as we move down from that, sort of the financial repercussions, the healthcare repercussions, the repercussions on family, all of the things we know about when people have pregnancies closer together and are at more risk for bad obstetric outcomes, for anemia, for other you know, health-related consequences, we're going to see all of those go up. And of course, like we're speaking in a very narrow way about health, right? We're not speaking of the more global concept of taking care of women and addressing their mental health, behavioral health, social needs, spiritual needs, that when their choices about 
how they plan their family, how much they control their bodies. When those things are restricted, the likely domino effect on so many aspects of their care in other ways can't be understated or can't be overstated. I think there's something that people often overlooked is so now these families will be without mothers and then they'll also have huge medical debt most likely. We know that the kind of devolution of our healthcare system into this sort of profit-making machine has harmed women's health, harmed maternal health, harmed family health. And in some ways, this is just another way of expressing that when we think to ourselves, right, that that healthcare itself is, is not a protected right, but instead sort of a a reflection of how our society thinks about gender and race and class. And it's reflected in this idea of people who have the potential for getting pregnant not having control over the choices they make and that the concept that the state can control those choices. I don't know that anybody really understands the full extent to how this will impact Women, And I think the other thing is, is, of course, we're trying to compare ourselves to a country decades ago. And decades ago, the role that women played, certainly in the, in the bigger economic picture, but even in the economy of the family, has changed as more and more women are sole breadwinners or equal breadwinners in their family or single parents. And when women are not strong and healthy, when we limit their options, the ramifications are countless, even beyond the health ramifications. One of the things you mentioned, even before this ruling, is that sometimes doctors are forced to lie to their patients. Could you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for a long time in many states, of many of these restrictive states, there is information that physicians and providers are obligated to provide to their patients. And lots of times there's false information in there. You know, the idea that having an abortion, ending a pregnancy increases your cancer rate, totally false. That it decreases the chances of conceiving in the future, totally false, on and on and on. And even the idea that they would be government, a bunch of legislators writing up something that then a provider would have to say out loud or convey in any way to their patients, it's ridiculous. And I think this is the other huge impact of this ruling is that the relationship of trust that should exist between a patient and a physician is just eliminated completely, right? We are criminalizing pregnancy, and then we are criminalizing the acts of the people who provide care to pregnant women. And the situation, the infrastructure we're creating around it of vigilantism, where private citizens are then in some way going to be responsible for reporting things. It's insane to imagine that things like somebody's going through a miscarriage, and it's the most horrible thing that ever happens to them. And then somebody around them suspects that maybe they tried to cause the miscarriage. 
and they're going to pursue this. And it might be a nurse. It might be somebody in that office. And suddenly, when the patient was in a place that she or he should feel completely safe, they are, are instead being reported and their behaviors and their condition and, you know, basically the gender is being criminalized in some way. And I think the vice versa is true also. I think there is no doubt that providers who feel it is their obligation to give women options, regardless of what state they lived in, are going to worry that they may not be able to continue to practice, that they may find themselves incarcerated, that they may find themselves facing fines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We haven't even seen how it's going to play out. But clearly the framework for for both providers, for anybody who supports these women, and for these women themselves, all being treated as criminals, right, as as non-law-abiding citizens. Actually, I find it quite frustrating. You know, I hear about the protections that lawyers have for the conversations that they have with their clients. And I find it incredibly challenging to imagine that in our society, we don't value the trust that's needed between physician and patient in the same way. It's been a slow, pernicious process that insurance companies dictate to physicians what they're allowed to do. And now the government dictates to the physicians what they're supposed to say to people. And yeah, and I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that obviously the women who have these healthcare needs are the people who are the center of who should um, have both our compassion and our efforts to support them. But I think that the physicians who care for these women, regardless of whether they're abortion providers or not, could be a pediatrician, you could be an internal medicine doctor, you could be a general surgeon who meets somebody who comes in in pain. Um, You could be an anesthesiologist who takes care of somebody when they're miscarrying or has an ectopic pregnancy or something that in some way these courts have determined is some protected place where the government is allowed to dictate what's best for not just this woman and her family, this person and her family, but for everybody around her. Yeah, I am actually, I am speechless. You, you know, we, you and I have spoken some and I find myself without like the right words to, to talk about this without, without like bursting into tears, to be frank. Like it's just how we got here. I know exactly how we got here. I know the history and the laws and the philosophy behind where we've gotten. And I do think that, although in some ways it seems separate, I do think the fact that we allowed our healthcare system to not be one of universal access and to not be a right that people had access to, but instead we've made it to this little profit-making machine or whether you're in hospice or you're getting prenatal care or you're buying vitamins, like all of those aspects have these huge profit margins driven into them. And, you know, somebody asked me uh, yesterday, called me and asked me what role I thought the insurance companies would play in this. (laughs) And I said, what, are you kidding? If the insurance companies, you know, get to say no to more things, you don't think we'll love that? They already love it, right? There's lots of, in so many states, 
private insurance isn't even allowed to cover abortion. But there's some states where it is because it's an outpatient procedure. But insurance companies just deny it. And vast majority currently in the United States of abortion care is paid for out of pocket. And then there's these huge companies, you know, that are saying that they're going to help women have access to abortion services by providing them with whatever it takes to get them to the right states. Meanwhile, those are the same companies that are financially backing our elected representatives who use our taxpayer money to pay for their salaries, right? Those are the corporations that influence the people that voted for these things, that put these justices in. And, you know, we haven't even touched on the idea of what a mockery of independent, apolitical process the Supreme Court is. And I think they're pretty open about that they're not. I think if you read carefully or not even carefully the ruling, they clearly feel very comfortable saying these are the things they believe. So there's a lot there. And you made me think of a couple things. One, I've forgotten that some states make physicians lie to their patients. <laughs> I mean, that's what you're saying. No, absolutely. 100%. It's not even funny. I laugh because I'm not a, I'm not a crier. Well, mm. I'm not a crier on Zoom, I guess. And now, I think that's horrible. But there are some other things you made me think of. One, the government should mandate that now insurance companies have to cover in-network for abortion providers who are out of state if the state restricts abortion, if they really want to do something. The other thing I think that would be interesting, and I really hadn't thought about this, but we need a federal law that basically says patient-doctor conversations are as protected as lawyer-client conversations. And that's something that could be done. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it actually is quite remarkable that physicians haven't spoken up for this previously. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot of complexity around this. And as a individual, you know, I take care of women as, a, as their physician individually, but I also have some training in public health. And there are aspects of public health that sometimes we've decided that individual privacy is outweighed by the public health needs, specifically around certain sexually transmitted diseases, et cetera. But the beauty was that during the very beginning of the really horrible HIV era, we started learning ways that we could balance, that we could balance privacy and public health needs. And I think we did a good job of it. And so trying to create a place where we recreate a space of trust that ultimately will be the most supportive and healing relationship for a patient and their family is really important. There's a whole lot of things we could do <laughs> if we could write good federal laws to protect people and to improve healthcare in America. One of the things that I think people don't realize, and I was a little bit surprised by the statistics, is how many 
women this is likely to affect? Because if I remember correctly, don't something like one in four women have an abortion before age 45? I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not sure if it's one in four or one in five, but it is very, very common. And I think the other piece is it's not just abortion care that we're talking about. The next thing up on the list is contraception. And there have been economic limitations placed on contraception. There have been mm, systemic, patriarchally limited approaches to contraception. There's been, you know, the pharmaceutical companies not pursuing this because of their fear of litigation. But if contraception comes into that, then anybody who has a period and who has sex is going to be impacted. And anybody who has sex with them. We sort of automatically talk about the person who's carrying a pregnancy, but, you know, like you said before, her partner, her other children, often women are caregivers. The impact her life and her health has on the people that she takes care of. So when we talk about access to abortion, I think at some level we have to acknowledge that there'll be very, very few people in our society who will be not impacted by this. If we look at the connections and that people have in our family and social structures. Well, one of the things too, I can see this is causing a lot of tough decisions. So for example, you're a gynecologic oncologist. And if a woman has cancer and needs treatment while she's pregnant, that could kill the fetus. So does that mean that? If I'm the provider giving her her chemo, for example, am I somehow going to be criminally held responsible for that? Very complicated. Or is the woman going to have to choose? Or Absolutely. Or is the woman going to be held criminally responsible? <laughs> I think everybody involved. I think there is the potential for everybody involved in that situation. And then for that woman to potentially forget, you know, forego life-saving therapy, again, how does that impact her partner and her other children? And most people who get abortions have children. And most people who get abortions are making that really hard and challenging decision in order to do the best they can for the children they have, right? It's because they don't feel capable of, of caring for another child that they make the decision they do, regardless. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. I take care of something called molar pregnancies that are uh, for, uh, there's no, fetus involved. It's an abnormal genetic kind of, in quotations, pregnancy, but they can go on to become a malignant process with metastasis to the lungs and to like a true cancer process um, if left untreated. And I remember being in a situation in a setting where one of the nurses in the operating room had a set of religious beliefs that led her to question what we were doing and kind of 
my challenge, she was somebody I worked with for a long time, who I found was an excellent nurse. And I had a really hard time trying to explain to her what it meant. But it has to do with the way we have come to view this issue in America that's kind of completely separate from health and healthcare, right? I mean, again, this is like a complicated topic, but I don't think the restrictions that we're placing on access to abortion have anything at all to do with healthcare. They have a lot to do with our inability and now our complete disregard for the separation of church and state. They have to do with society that inherently has misogyny and sexism written into its laws and history that persist currently and ideas about how we control women's bodies. And then if we were even to look at the political movement that seemed to have very little to do with the religious beliefs about abortion and to have a lot more to do with how to gain political power. Again, like a topic not not on, on, on what we're here to talk about today, but I think that's the other complexity for me about this as a physician, as a provider, as somebody who's dealing with people who are going to face these situations in their day-to-day life, realizing that they're being put in these impossible situations for something that has nothing at all to do with health or health care. And for example, I just saw something on Twitter this morning where the doctor said there was an I'm, I'm sorry, there was ectopic. an ectopic, thank you. A doctor said there was an ectopic pregnancy and they had to delay because they needed to consult the lawyers. And it took them almost nine hours and the woman almost died. Now they were able to save her, but. That's ridiculous. You know, that's a ridiculous. This is America. Thing. Yeah. And the ectopic pregnancy, I mean, a fetus is not going to survive that. And it's ridiculous that you have these it's laws. It's well before the fetus stage that most of the time yeah. pregnancies, right? You can't grow a pregnancy in a fallopian tube. Right. You can't. You don't have the blood supply. You, yeah, you don't have the uterus. Yeah, no, I mean, but those issues go on and on, right? The issue of ectopic pregnancies, the issues of miscarriage and how we men- you know, manage them. But even the really challenging issues of kind of later in pregnancy, when people find out that they have unsurvivable fetal or genetic anomalies or abnormalities, you know, when a fetus dies in utero, how can we take care of those women? And already their care is limited and they have to travel to seek care. I think the other piece that we haven't specifically spoken to, of course, is the role of economics and class in this situation, that it's women who don't have means, who don't have financial means that will suffer the most because they will not be able to gain access to the providers or the places um, they can get to because they're challenged by geography, by finance, by not being able to leave work for enough days, by not being able to have other people available to care for their kids, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I think that it's hard not to think that people were having malignant thoughts. Well, you bring up the factor of economics. The statistics that you cited earlier, that it will cause a 15% increase overall in 
I think it was maternal mortality. Maternal mortality, yes. And a 33% increase in maternal mortality for women of color. Yep. I don't know if people realize this, but the maternal mortality rates in this country are already extremely high, higher than any other developed country, I believe. Higher than our own country. We've seen increases in maternal mortality over the past 30 years. Pregnancy-related deaths have nearly tripled, right? So we're getting worse in our own country compared to our own selves. Yeah, I don't know if people realize either. So we've had a long discussion about how bad our healthcare system is when it comes to maternal mortality and how it's going to get worse. What do you think we need to do so that we can improve the situation? In the short term, I think we have to provide support to the people who need care today, right? So we need to support the organizations that provide services. We need to make sure that patients and providers in the states that are providing services are legally covered, financially supported, emotionally supported. And there's a lot of organizations doing great work. Physicians for Reproductive Health is a good organization for physicians to join. There's a number of organizations that PNHP has included in their support that provide actual care And I think for some time, that's going to be a lot of what we have to do. I'm trying to think of the organizations beyond Planned Parenthood, Whole Woman's Health Alliance, um, the Miscarriage and Abortion Hotline, Plan C, a research-based organization. I mean, I think we have to do everything we can do at every level to make sure that people have choices and are able to make the best decisions for themselves and their families. And that, you know, geography and finances don't limit them and limit their life choices and the choices for their family and limit their potential for best health or threaten their lives. In the longer run, I will be really truthful. Maybe I'm too close to the Friday decision and maybe I should have, you know, formulated a thought process on this before. I think all the things that we've talked about seem to be challenges right now, you know, whether it's keeping a majority in the House and the Senate and trying to pass laws that um, protect women's bodily autonomy and right to self-determination, how we make that happen, how we, you know, protect women at the state levels, you know, and beyond that, Joe, the issue that drives me is that healthcare is a human right that we should have universal access to healthcare and it should include every kind of care that is medically deemed appropriate. Not philosophically, not religiously, not because of how you grew up, not because of what somebody thought in 1776. But regardless, based on the science that we have now, based on where we are now, thinking about the best way to give people the longest, best quality lives they can. And that's not what we do currently. But we can do that. That combination of holding our elected leaders 
to the promises they make. And if your elective leader doesn't make these promises, changing those leaders. And the Supreme Court to me is a real challenge. And I am not enough of a political or legal expert to be able to speak to this in the most intelligent way. But I think that this idea that we're gonna to continue to respect the filibuster when we're not respecting mothers, daughters, wives, you know, women, people who can get pregnant, families, children, spouses, partners, like, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. Again, like I am someone who takes care of people and sits in front of them every day and helps them make really hard decisions around their fertility needs, their sexual health, life and death, quality of their life, the quality of their death. And the idea that a bunch of people could sit around in a room and make these kinds of decisions so far from removed from any real people, I, I really struggle with that. Maybe I can be more articulate about it in a week or two still feeling pretty unsafe in America as a female person, as someone who takes care of people who are at risk for getting pregnant. Dr. Singh, I was really struck by something. Even though I've been doing this for over three years, I had forgotten that sometimes politicians are passing laws that require physicians to give false information and that we don't really protect the confidentiality of patients and doctors. And that's just another horrible thing that's added to our healthcare system. And we've just done something where women and families have to make tough decisions. And we just made that a whole lot harder. And absolutely, it really infuriates me. Well, I'm sure it infuriates you too. Well, I mean, and I think the real challenge is, right, that there's this falsehood, right? Everybody's heard of HIPAA because they heard it on something or they had to sign something when they showed up in their office. But the truth is, like, we sign away things all the time and it's not truly respected in any way. My niece was talking about these discussions that people are having about take yourself off. You know, a lot of young women use these period apps. So they can know when they're getting their period and know when to expect it and know when they're having irregular cycles and there's to be one of the health trackers. And they're like, get off there. You don't want people to know when you could possibly, you know, because this is public information. And that's crazy. Dr. Singh, thank you again for being on Medicare for All Explained. You're so welcome. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Remember to tell your family, friends, and colleagues about this podcast. Information about Medicare for All Explained can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.